0: Hi, this is Christopher Bandini, one of the co-hosts for New Books in Psychoanalysis, and I will be speaking today with uh, Dr. Uh, Margaret Krasnopol. And uh, Margaret Krasnopol is a faculty member of the Seattle Psychoanalytic Society and Institute in Seattle, Washington. She got her analytic certificate and is a supervisor of psychotherapy at the William Allenson White Institute of Psychiatry, Psychoanalysis, and Psychology. She is on the executive committee of the International Association for Relational Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, the IARPP. She writes and teaches nationally and internationally about the analyst's and patient's subjectivity, the vicissitudes of love, lust, and attachment drives, and varieties of microtrauma. Dr. Krasnopol is in private practice with psychoanalytically oriented treatment of individuals and couples in Seattle, Washington, and we're here to talk about her book, Microtrauma, a Psychoanalytic Understanding of Cumulative Psychic Injury, and that's published by Rutledge. So uh, welcome, Dr. Krastopol. Can I refer to you as Peggy? Please do. Good, good. So uh, can you tell me uh, what led you to write this book?
1: Well, there are a few things that contributed. One is that I have felt somewhat puzzled and snagged. Um, My thinking has been kind of snagged on the fact that um, very often the kinds of um, standard analytic type approaches that we take toward interpreting different kinds of psychic phenomena and experiences um, that while, while many of them are, of course, very much on the mark and useful, there are oftentimes when they're not so useful and patients kind of retain and, and we as individuals retain levels of upset about what can feel like um, confusing or puzzling or mystifying things in our lives that are not so fully addressed by our standard approaches. And so I began to think a lot about what else might be going on that might be occurring um, off the radar and that might need to be kind of highlighted in order to have kind of a fuller impact, if possible, in, in the analytic work. And so that's that's one uh, one contributor to my desire to conceptualize things along these lines. Uh, And the other one was that I've been impressed by the fact that there are many different kinds of hurtful experiences that go on in the world uh, and that occur between individuals. And in fact, that occur as we relate to ourselves internally, that we didn't really have analytic names for or ways of thinking about so directly other than. Uh, broader terms having to do with uh, questions of self-esteem, sense of self um, uh, and um, conflicts and developmental arrests and things like that, which are, again, very important, in fact, essential, um, but that don't always deal with the minutia, you know, minutiae in the sense of the smaller details that also can be wounding. So I wanted to take on that as a as a problem to try to try to uh, address.
0: Certainly, two things that came to mind when I was reading uh, the book were: uh, was I wondered if the book could have been written fifty years ago, before the relational interpersonal? I mean, thirty or fifty years ago, some period in the past, uh, because uh, it's almost like if someone spoke the way that you were addressing in the book, I I was would think that it might've been a dismissed or, or thought of as kind of resistance or something that it was kind of not useful for someone to talk about their indignation or about the, uh, uh, their problem at work, or the or bringing in situations like I see in my practice, where someone comes in and says, "Can you believe what happened to me today? How someone treated me, uh, you know, on the street or at home, or that my mother said this to me?" That almost it was almost besides the point, and that you were able to kind of figure out something that was quite different. And and uh, on the same note, this the sense of maybe, uh, and it's a this is a kind of a a bit of a, a landmine for me, you know, whenever somebody digs this up, uh, the the sense that maybe we're seeing patients talking differently or a different type of patient is that possible as well
1: well i, I certainly think um that uh, uh, the the time in which we're working affects psychic functioning and our psyches affect the time in which we're working of course <laughs> um as kind of um a double helix and um, infinity uh tendency um with one affecting the other and vice versa um Uh, but I I guess um, one way to think about it would be that, yes, these things would be missed. Um, Maybe they would have happened before or after the session because they might not have been viewed as being valuable even by the patient. Uh, So that sort of thing could have happened. And, or um, such a thing might have been referred back to a posited, uh, so to speak, deeper analytic type issue, psychodynamic issue that, that would have been sort of, you could say a, a, a certain kind of reductionism down to currents of, um, you know, id, um, you know, libidinal urges, aggressive urges, defenses against those things, and there would be truth in that, um, or you know, self self worth currents and their their violation and so on and so forth. And again, there'd be truth and meaning in that, but it might not dress address the nuance of the way it plays out and the manifestation itself. And so it might feel really fairly far-fetched and far-field and not sufficiently experienced near for the patient to be able to close the circle and and make sense of it as a significant occurrence.
0: Now, I suppose we could say in the interpersonal world, uh, maybe Harry Stack Sullivan and, and his people who came after those, do you think they addressed it more uh got to it more or do you think that they even they missed it when we're talking about relationships between people were were they were they onto it and just didn't uh articulate it quite as fully as you do
1: oh i think that uh the early and and the more recent interpersonalists are certainly onto these things um and that's been a very big influence in my own thinking i was trained at an interpersonalist institute or at a time when the White Institute was deemed interpersonalist and certainly its, its major uh, contributor uh, to its theoretical positioning, but um, even at the time when I was going through training, there was a, a broadening and a widening and a deepening of understanding of various analytic currents and so we were also you know being exposed to object relations and of course self-psychology and and other important um currents in analytic thinking but the interpersonalists were probably the most attuned to the vagaries and nuances of that kind of relating harry stax sullivan himself was famously sensitive to these kinds of qualities and um and yet i would say that that uh, at least in early interpersonalist thinking um, there was, again, not so much of a focus on on the specific of a given type of encounter it, that instead there'd be looking back to the the broader and deeper questions of self-worth and the currents of self-worth, which, again, I think are very apropos, but which don't capture the specific patterning that I find, you know, important and 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 useful as a handhold for the the patient as a, as a way to grab onto what might be going on in the minute so that it's less likely to 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 continue in quite the same way.
0: I suppose it might be helpful, uh, and you you do talk about this in your book. It, it might be helpful to identify some of these specific maneuvers, uh, uh, some of the things. What is microaggression? What is microtrauma, as opposed to some of the uh, uh, big T trauma, etc.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, well, I've defined microtrauma and for my purposes, I'm I'm using that term to refer to the kinds of subtle, uh, and off the radar, um, injuries that people inflict on one another and themselves, sometimes somewhat intentionally or quite intentionally, sometimes inadvertently, and that these kinds of things, uh, under certain circumstances, um, Build up over time, accumulate to create, again, a kind of broader and deeper wounding of the self um, and and uh, sometimes distortion of one's character um, and a sense of um, lowered affect, sometimes depression, sometimes anxiety, sometimes a blend. There can be shame, of course, Um, the whole panoply guilt at times, the whole panoply of troubled inner experience. Um, so that is, that is, of course, what I'm addressing. I distinguish it, uh, from microaggressions only in, um, something of a semantic way, two semantic ways. One, that I'm, I'm not speaking specifically of them being aggressions because, um, their aggression to me implies, um, a certain kind of mindset, a certain type of internal attitude, a certain level of, Intentionality. Um, And I think that sometimes we wound each other um, kind of as an epiphenomenon, as kind of a happenstance that plays out because of other kinds of factors, um, situational factors, and how we relate to them, and so on and so forth. So to me, it can be damaging without it necessarily being officially aggressive or. Carrying some of those other connotations. So that's one reason why I call it microtrauma, you know, the impact it has rather than speaking about it being an aggression per se. Uh, the second very important reason is that Gerald um, uh, Wing Sue got to this first. And he really needs to be honored for the work that he's done um, on the subject of microaggressions. And he uses the term to refer to the kinds of wounding that goes on by virtue of someone's being part of a certain kind of most likely a minority or, or some sort of ethnic group or um, a gender uh, orientation, um, sexual orientation uh, that that tends to draw certain kinds of um, disapproval from the world at large or the larger uh, society and that sets one up to be um, discounted, discredited, um, unseen um, by virtue of your being part of that group. So um, that is a somewhat different, but a related concept. My my interest is more on the things that occur because of who we are, more personally and privately, and what evolves out of that. Um, but certainly. Some micro traumas are microaggressive and some microaggressions will be experienced, you know, in a very personal way and may um, may combine our our identification as being of a certain gender or with certain sexual orientation or of a certain ethnicity can well combine with more. Even even more personal factors. It's all personal, but can combine with more personal specific factors that can lead to things being experienced as wounding, or in fact, can lead to our wounding others inadvertently or sometimes intentionally.
0: You know, in the book, uh, each chapter can be (laughs) kind of taken on its own, with uh, where you identify certain ways of, of. acting of relating, uh, that kind of illustrate their points. And, and certainly one of the first ones in the book is the, uh, the idea of the unkind cutting back. And, uh, it's just some wonderful examples of there of, of that in the chapter. Can you, can you speak about the unkind cutting back for us?
1: Certainly. Um, uh, what I call unkind cutting back has to do with, um, the alteration in, uh, the rhythm of relating, And the frequency of relating that can occur that's generally, um, as I describe it, a unilateral decision. So one person in a two person relationship, um, that's, you know, the paradigmatic instance, Um, one person um, kind of abruptly without warning or without a clear understanding begins to um, uh, be available less frequently or. Uh, or um, with less uh, presence, we could say, is less present even if available, you know, ostensibly <laughs> available, um, or in some other way cuts back on the connectedness that had heretofore been present in that relationship. And and because the other person uh, is often blindsided by this, um, it can indeed be very disorienting And it can interfere, there there can be factors that contribute to it not being possible to really inquire into it. So that you're sort of, if you're the object of this kind of cutback, um, you can feel uh, blocked from questioning it because that can then make you feel even more anxious, more needy, make you feel that much more um, um, rejected, if you will. So there's a proneness to kind of keep it vague on both people's part so as not to have to kind of address the harder underlying elements that might have contributed to that occurring. Uh, By the same token, sometimes it happens just as a happenstance and um, there really is not much intention behind the change in rhythm or availability. Um, But yet it can feel to the person who's the object of it. It can feel as if maybe there is. And and again, that can be hard to address so it's that kind of bind that i'm talking about in that sort of instance and i of course speak to it as being a factor in um analytic and psychotherapeutic work uh when it comes to changes in literal changes in frequency or in fact you know decisions to end therapy that sometimes this comes about in a way that stays kind of murky or um um unarticulated and therefore a lot can be projected onto it. Like what, what does the patient really mean in suggesting a reduction in frequency? Um, you know, what are the various elements contributing to it or what does the analyst really mean? Quote unquote, really um, in recommending um, slowing down on, on the session frequency or even fact uh, bringing something to a close. Um, it can be, it can be very challenging to deal with these things and a good deal of tact, um, is important, but sometimes actually the tact can interfere with getting to the bottom of things in a way that could be most constructive. So that, that can also play out. Uh,
0: yes. I, I, I think so. Uh, I think so many times I'll, I'll, I'll speak about the, the patient side of it where these things are pref- uh, presented matter of factly, for instance, uh, why don't we just cut back to once every other week? It's, You know, I think that would be good or or uh, I'll be away for the next month on vacation. I'll see you when I get back. And um, Mm -hmm. and and kind of the impact on both parties of that type of kind of casual, um, casual, unkind cutting back, basically. Uh, But that often isn't seen that way as the patient is just seen kind of as what's the matter with that.
1: Yes, yes, it's um, it's very easy uh, to impute. Uh, any problems that arise out of that sort of thing to sort of impute them to the patient, that the patient's being difficult or dependent or resistive or whatever. And I think it's important to be attuned to how troubling, how ambiguous it can be and how it can sort of call forth a sense of being Rejected, or or having a part of oneself rejected, or not really knowing what might be going on in the analyst's point of view. When it is the analyst or or you know analytic clinician who is making the the decision. Um, by by the same token, transferentially the clinician can feel. Puzzled and wounded and unsure about, you know, the fullness of what a decision, you know, of whatever is behind a patient's decision when the patient decides to cut back in frequency or move toward closure. So um, kind of allowing it to come uh, to come onto the analytic table and and really address the varying elements, I think, can be challenging, but but very therapeutic all, uh, all around. Mm
0: hmm. I think another difficult situation I I sometimes encounter is uh is when the patient gets uh, get is blindsided by somebody in this uneasy intimacy situation. Like I I've been with this person for two or three years and I just never thought they would act this way. Whether it's a boss or a, a romantic partner or whatever, and and at how difficult it is for them to to say that how they didn't see something about it or how they how could they have missed it, but that it was as if the person who did the <laughs> did this was um, it was totally out of character um, i don't remember if that comes up in the book or not but there's that sense of kind of being blindsided by someone else's character
1: i think that's a very interesting point um and i don't know that i i spoke to that explicitly in the way that you've just done but it's um i i think you're right it happens with a good amount of frequency and someone um you know it's it's a question of the, the paradox or the the, the contradiction that for social functioning at, at a level of um, being in a work setting or whatever uh, to go smoothly, there needs to be a certain kind of face saving that goes on and a certain kind of um, smoothing over of uh, disagreements or um, negative feeling the one toward the other. And, and so to some degree, that kind of social oiling of the wheels is protective and constructive. But it can also um, mask uh, difficulties, which if they could be addressed more directly, might let someone in on the fact that a cutting back may be coming down the pike. Um, but So that's one thought I have. But but to come back to your thought, there will indeed be people whose characters are such that they're more likely to do that kind of smoothing over, which can indeed leave the other person fairly blindsided. And um, that can be a, a very hurtful occurrence. And
0: uh, another interesting concept you write about in the book is, is connoisseurship. I thought this was just just a great – Idea that kind of the sense of people joining together over shared um, is it? It's, it's deeper than shared interest, right?
1: Oh yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it can be a range of things. Um, it can be a, a mild, um, you know, or an area of interest that's casual, or it can be um, actually a, a life, a life project, a life immersion, you know, like a profession of some kind, uh, or it can be. Um, other things having to do with just how the self functions you know the, the raising of the self how we influence each other's psychic development in a friendship or whatever um, so, so yeah it can be about something kind of circumscribed and delimited like a career interest or um, a, an avocational interest um, but it can also be um, instead about um, things that are more central to the self or indeed about the whole self and I give examples of that um, uh, in, uh, in the chapter having to do with um, movies like The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, where, where the whole purpose of, um, uh, of a certain kind of boarding school setting or some other intensive um, and separate kind of educational environment or setting is to raise one's, so to speak, the children, the younger generation – um, with a very particular set of very high standards, uh, kind of an elitist kind of um, inculcation, if you will, um, that is meant to touch not only their superficial interests um, and life project interests, but also everything about the way they function in the world, ultimately. And then it has, a, you know, reads very large in the world. Of course, we see this as well in um, and in a very the very interesting study of. Um, uh, My Fair Lady, or the Pygmalion myth, and the Pygmalion play by George Bernard Shaw, um, and, and then, as I say, the musical that that uh, came out of that, um, in which the relationship between um, Professor Higgins and Liza Doolittle exemplifies a lot of the things that we're talking about, including some of the damage that can accrue as a function of it. Hmm.
0: Uh, I think before reading your book, I, was, I would tend to think of these in terms of uh, uh, schizoid structure i guess you do mention that a bit but there's kind of an intimacy with a distance i suppose and where this kind of gets enacted is that is that accurate
1: are you speaking here of the uneasy intimacy pattern yeah the uneasy
0: int- and even in the connoisseurship people matching up over certain things that that really maybe it's not a good reason to be together but they're together anyway because of some sort of match and then it doesn't necessarily work out in the long run I'm um, mm-hmm. thinking of that kind of almost as like a, kind of maybe almost like as two schizoid people getting together in a way.
1: Oh, that that certainly can be um, a contributor. I mean that you know when that happens, instances jump to mind. Um, yes, indeed, that that can then crystallize a way of relating to one another that's more about pursuing. You know, as I say in in connoisseurship, kind of the pursuing of even the more nuanced aspect of a given shared. Uh, area so um, that itself can replace a deeper uh, more thoroughgoing relating and would be likely to do so when two schizoid people come together then indeed they're going to redirect their energies toward a third thing um, and it will interfere with a deeper kind of relating or substitute for it Um, but one can also envision situations where two hysteric people might come together Um, and, and, and get all excited about whatever, um, and, and support each other's further involvement in a given, again, a field or, um, what have you, or pursuit of some other kind, um, avocation, you know, hobby, uh, and, 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 where that then becomes the focus and the source of, um, gaining approval from the other person, um, in an ever increasing spiral that again, um. Ends up trapping them in that kind of thing, and and perhaps generating competitive feelings um, that preclude other healthier ways of developing a sense of self worth.
0: There's just again, there's just so much here that's so interesting. Uh, you know, just looking it's like psychic airbrushing, <laughs> and and what and what that's about, which I, I guess I think is related. I suppose maybe. To earlier concepts of, of uh, is it gas is gaslighting included there and other things like uh, terms like that in, in psychic airbrushing or am I um, again, I'm sure that it and en- I know it encompasses more than that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, um, one of the complexities of, of naming these kinds of patterns um, is that there can be some overlap uh, and. Um, you know, I, in the book, I mentioned the idea of gaslighting as in a sense being a precursor of my thinking along these lines in general. Uh, it was, of course, you know, the, the term comes from the movie of the same name gaslight. Um, and it's now used in, you know, everyday, uh, conversation and interacting to refer to a situation where, uh, one person, um, intentionally or sometimes unintentionally um, can make the other person feel um, that their own perception of the world is is very off kilter or in fact crazy. And uh, at some level, the intention is, to unsettle them in a way that will can be turned to the first person's advantage, so um, that was uh, written about very meaningfully um, by Califf and Weinshaw I think are their names, but uh, i I came across it uh, through the um, writing of Ted Dorpat, um, who has a book on the subject um, he's unfortunately he's he was a Seattle analyst who's unfortunately no longer with us but um, i I think that that really captures, um, early and early, um, uh, perspective on a particular type of microtraumatic patterning. Um, another one is the writing, um, by Lang and others, uh, about the double bind, um, and the way in which, um, for example, a parent can double bind a child by, uh, implying that the child must do this thing, which if they do, the parent will be uh, very rejecting of them for having done it. Um, obviously very, very crazy making, um, and disturbing and Lang wrote about it in the context of it being schizophrenogenic, but it happens in other settings as well. So, so these are two, what I think of as kind of, um, earlier, um, uh, um, articulations of, of, of two in very interesting and problematic patterns along these lines. Um, I think of, um, uh, psychic airbrushing as a situation where, um, and, and I combine it with the idea of excessive niceness, um, I think it's kind of like social desirability. We, we call it in, in, in psychology, there's a, a, a testing term it's called social desirability functioning, uh, which refers to the fact that what we present to the world will very often be a function of what we think will be deemed acceptable by the world. Um, you know, Winnicott talked about it. In his way uh, when he spoke about the false self, but this is um, but the social desirability responding and the effort to look good to the other goes beyond having a false self it's it's that to a power of two uh, let's say and or or three and psychic airbrushing is to a pattern uh, is to a power of five or six um, it's it's that much more exaggerated where only the positive uh, can be acknowledged. And, um, I use as an example in the book, a situation of a patient who was so unrelentingly positive and upbeat and wanting to show a positive face, um, not only in his own functioning, but his family's functioning, his company's functioning and on and on, um, that it became really impossible at his company, um, or in the intimate relating that he had with his son, it became impossible to talk about actual problems and um, negative feelings and frustrated feelings and so on. They, they would immediately get turned into something that had sort of a, a shiny face to it. Um, and uh, it really badly interfered with some problems being dealt with, uh, with the result that things got worse and worse. And to be able to help the patient recognize that this was what was going on and to understand the damaging aspect of it. um, It took quite a bit of doing because it was in some ways a very successful defense. And that's an important aspect of all the, these kinds of adaptive defensive patterns that I speak about that they are quasi adaptive. And, you know, as, as I said, that there are ways in which they do work for the person. And so to have to recognize the downside and, and perhaps sacrifice that way of work of, of being in the world is is a tall order, and and it's a question of how you can remodel other aspects of the self and of one's customary way of relating to kind of um, compensate oneself for letting this one go, and that takes some doing.
0: What would you say? And there's some excellent you know cl- clinical examples in the book. Uh, did you have to modify how you were with patients, or uh, do you find modifications of technique to to noticing these type of uh, type of things we're talking about, or, or or you know, are there technical things that you that you uh, do to address these issues?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, I speak to this a little bit um, toward the end of the book, um, but there's more to be said about it. Um, A very important concept which which crosses the divide between microtrauma and capital T trauma, a very important thing is witnessing, is uh, helping the, the patient become attuned to indicators that these kinds of things are going on, either in the way he or she is being treated or in the way he or she is treating the other and being with the other. And in fact, a third element is how one is treating oneself. So... Witnessing means being becoming more alert to cues that something is going wrong, and and that means listening into oneself and observing the other more acutely, and being willing to see what one sees, and sometimes finding an outside person, very often the therapist, but at times it also can be someone in one's you know immediate circle, whether one's family or close friends, who also can help one recognize and process. Uh, these kinds of subtler things. So um, there's work to be done right there, and that requires uh, a certain shift in focus, a, a willingness to to keep at the smaller things, um, saying like, well, that, that made you a little uncomfortable there. Let's not skip over that. Something about it felt off. What could it have been? So it requires a certain kind of slow-paced, um, patient analytic focus, on the way in which certain types of things like this can play out. Like like if there's a connoisseurship relation going on, you might say, well, I hear the thrill for you when you were able to write rewrite that essay in a way that your teacher um, was looking for and addressing the concerns the teacher had. And I, I see how satisfying it was for you. And of course, that's marvelous. But, you know, I also get the sense that you felt somewhat, Unheard by the teacher that maybe, maybe you had to swallow the feeling that the teacher was not uh, fully enough hearing why you had done it this other way initially and what kind of personal contribution you were attempting to make there. And let's not, let's not let that get lost. Let's acknowledge that in some way you felt dismissed at the same time as you felt thrilled by receiving that praise. And let's consider together how much that might be mounting up in the training process for you and what might there be that could be done about it to sort of minimize that unfortunate consequence uh, to the kind of training that you're getting. So, you know, it would be that, that way of working uh, that I think is similar to, but also in some ways different from what we might ordinarily do.
0: Well, yes, I think it does build on many interpersonal techniques, especially on selective and attention detailed inquiry and kind of takes it further
1: yes i think I think that's fair to say
0: uh, one thing that came up with a, a a patient the other day we were actually talking you know it's it, it's great because I think the book is just so useful you know it's in the book does integrate theory, but it's just it's a useful book you know <laughs> which which is great and uh one thing I was wondering about with the patient was how does somebody like a parent right we're talking about somebody's uh, parent or grandmother who uh, who was not an educated person and not a psychologically aware person but yet could participate in these type of maneuvers to a kind of almost a very sophisticated degree and we were just kind of talking about it and wondering about it it's kind of kind of uh, fascinated by how that could happen that's that that a person could know how to do some of these things the undercutting the pulling back without really uh, on a totally unconscious level
1: yes yes uh, it is it is quite fascinating. Some of these things are quite intuitive. Um, it's it's a big challenge to, re- to relate to oneself and to relate to the other in the world. We humans have quite a challenge there. Um, and I, I think that um, what your what your uh, comment is pointing toward is the question of how one works with that in one's world once one does become aware of it going on. Uh, I think that's a very important question. And I think that what can be very valuable can be um, to help a patient in some way um, empathize with the perpetrator. And we are all both, if if you think about it this way, it makes it somewhat easier. We're all both victims and perpetrators of microtrauma in our daily life. That's just a given. Um, but some of us will be more likely to be the one than the other. And some of us will dish it out more than others do. So these are things to consider as one analyzes character structure and so on and so forth. But I, I find that... Um, where a person um, is caught in a in a destructive uh, kind of mic- microtraumatic engagement with the other that repeats itself, let's say a child with a parent, if you will, um, very often there's a sense of loyalty that one doesn't want to wound the parent by pointing something like this out, um, or concern that the parent will um, uh, be so feel so rejected or so, um, in fact, uh, angered by it that it will severely rupture the relationship. And these are valid concerns. Um, but but if the patient has come to understand enough about the microtraumatic patterning, it can be possible to sort of bracket what they know and think a little bit about what might bring the other to engage on, on their side, what might cause them to function that way toward the self. And if you can approach it that way with some degree of, you you could say uh, compassion. Though I don't mean it in a in any kind of a overly sentimental way, but if you can have compassion for the others' need to do that to oneself, then it it can kind of leaven the effort to speak about it. It can allow one to approach it in a um a, 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 a more well rounded way to kind of leave some degree of grace or leeway in one's attitude toward the other in pointing it out. Sometimes not when it's been terribly egregious, but, but sometimes it makes it possible to say, you know, there's an indirectness in the way you're speaking to me. And I know, I know, I I know your parents, they were like that too. So you come by it honestly, but you know, it, it poses a problem for me when you're indirect with me or, or when you, um, uh, you know, to use the example we cited earlier, when you prettify things for me, I know you don't mean it um, with ill intent, but it does really scramble my sense of what's going on. Can, can, we, can we speak more directly with more of the dark side showing so I really get it? Uh, and, and, and can we work on doing this together for the long haul and not just in this conversation, that sort of thing? So I think there's a place for a certain kind of, if you will, psychoeducation um, between analyst and patient in the working out process.
0: Well, you're really paying so much close attention to uh, both their history, but also how it's impacting you. It's all kind of going on at the same time and and using it in the moment, which I think is you know really something we all strive for. Uh, but but it's such a wonderful example of, of that type of work, of, uh, of seeing the history, but also um, using ourselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: well I think also something I was thinking about in the, in the reading was, was the difference or, or maybe how, um, working where you work also influences some of what, you, some of the things you were writing about, like almost as if you're in a certain cultural setting in Seattle that brings up some of these things in a, in, a, in unique ways.
1: Uh, well uh yeah i i i uh, I do feel that that is true um and i I make a, a case for that in the book, in particular in the chapter on psychic airbrushing and excessive niceness, because, as I say in that chapter, um there are great regional differences uh in the u s um and not even going for the moment, not even going into the issue of uh, differences from country to country, even within. Our country, there are big regional differences, and the norm here in Seattle is uh, for a level of politeness and civility which does grease the wheel socially, so it has its place. But it can uh, function as kind of a frustrating um, uh, obstacle for for people who are raised elsewhere, or for people for whom this isn't such a natural thing. It can it can be an obstacle to to deeper and more Um, I, I would, I'm inclined to use the word authentic relating, although in some ways that's not fair because what is authenticity, but, um, that there are elements that are being kept out of the picture when there's too, too much niceness going on, which make it hard for other people, um, to really get their footing in a, a certain kind of psychic exchange with the other. And I see that happening quite a bit in Seattle where, uh, One might feel as if a good rapport has been established and a friendship might be building, but then it never goes anywhere and one doesn't know to what degree was the other person just... Being civilly polite, the way one tends to be in Seattle, or to what degree one actually has done something to offend the other, and one can't put one's finger on that, and so you don't know how to proceed, or whether it's even worth trying to proceed. And I hear this again and again from people who are transplanted to Seattle, but you know, from you know other parts of the country. But by the same token, those of us who are transplants can be experienced in uh, a puzzling way to Seattleites who are not used to a certain kind of um, no holds barred, frank, direct, rapid style of speech, for example, like what happens when a New Yorker, um, <laughs> you know, uh, makes makes this kind of uh, migration and um, acts the way they would typically act. And this can be experienced as, as abrasive and, and troubling uh, to um, the people around them here in the Pacific Northwest. So, again, these things do cut both ways and identifying it can actually – Ratchet down the upset uh, on either either side and help people get more in sync with each other psychically and
0: and interpersonally. So these, uh, so a micro trauma might look different in in the, the South than in Seattle or in uh, in Chicago. So we have to kind of be sensitive to thinking about these regional differences.
1: Exactly, exactly. And what might be healthy you know, and very acceptable and constructive functioning in one region might prove a problem in another. And that problem itself may end up traumatizing or micro traumatizing, as I think of it, one or the other. I mean, I hear people in Seattle, for example, um, talking about the difficulty of getting schooling in another state and then and feeling that they were having trouble understanding the cues that they were being given by those they were surrounded by in, you know, Wisconsin or, you know, Boston or wherever not getting what was going on for them. And then I hear people, um, transplants from other places, other regions here in Seattle, complaining of the same thing, but it being different things that they're pointing to, of course. So, and, and that, you know, ends up seeping into the sense of self. And I mean, it sounds quite superficial if you think of it as a, like um, just a, a social ill at easeness, but, but it can contribute in people who are already prone to uh, self-doubt and insecurity and, and self-denigration, it can add fuel to the fire of that in unfortunate ways.
0: Uh, similarly, and I think you touch on this in the book as well, uh, working with people in, who are successful, say, in a technical field, and then their difficulties in transferring successful skills in one aspect of their life to another area and finding out that that doesn't really work so well. And that, that's true, not just in Seattle, I think anywhere, but I think it is something you uh, you touch on.
1: Yes, I am very interested in, uh, in character and in contributors to character that are both um, experiential contrib- contributors and what happens through nurture uh, and then what aspects might can be thought of as more constitutional or hardwired and these are vague kinds of um, categories and uh, a lot more work needs to be done to consider what the interweaving might be between what's constitutional and what's uh, learned behavior and how you know how these interface and how difficult in fact it is to fully distinguish one from the other um, and over time I think we'll ha- develop better ways of talking about these different contributors and rather than through just a simple dichotomy. But, you know, for clarity of of communication, I would say that um, constitutionally, um, there are great differences in how people are in the world from, you know, early on in life you know, what they bring genetically and then what early life experience um, hardens up within them and that that kind of sets up certain tendencies toward one or another way of experiencing the world and relating and that these things themselves can pose problems in the um, interpersonal matrix of which they're a part. So whether that's within their own family or within the larger context of a work group or a student group or a... Um, a friendship group or a larger community uh, these things play out so somebody who might find themselves in a tech environment might be what for example Simon Baron Cohn called uh, more systematized they might have um, have a tendency to think more in terms of um, the relations among um, things in the world and you um, uh, how you might work with those relations to achieve a certain goal, whereas uh, other people come into the world, for example, stronger in what uh, Baron Cohen calls empathization, the, the the interest in relatedness among people um, and a focus on the inner world uh, is is much more accessible to these folks and they're more fascinated by it. Uh, so, um, those kinds of people would probably be drawn to a different sort of professional setting and a different sort of friendship group. And when those kinds of things um, don't accord with the niche that they're in, then it can it can be um, a setup for certain kinds of microtraumatic events to occur. Um, somebody who is more, uh, more of a tech or an engineering guy or a STEM guy or, or woman um, might behave in what could seem like a colder way to another uh, than the other is used to. And the other might take it as uh, an insulting way of treating them or a discounting way. Whereas maybe for their, you know, the person we're talking about, the person in question is, is just being matter of fact and just just operates in that kind of more systematized way, not so concerned about and or attuned to the emotional impact that they're having, um, and that can occasion microtraumatic functioning. So um, it, it can be minor if it's a one-time thing, but if it is something that's likely to recur over time because the two people are on the same team, or in fact it's a it's a marital relationship, uh, or or uh, something else that's going to go on. Um, somewhat indefinitely, uh, potentially indefinitely, then um, it, it does set the stage for a kind of um, automatic wounding to occur over time. And if it can be addressed as something that's not necessarily intentional, but might in fact be, be a function of constitutional elements that are just hardwired in, actually that can make it more palatable to the other and open up new avenues of exploration that can be much less hurtful and more constructive.
0: Thanks. What's the response been to the book? I'm sure it's been been pretty positive.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm happy to say that um, that the book seems to appeal to a wide range of people. Um, I think different people draw different things out of it. There are certainly um, um, a lot of clinical material shared and sort of wider social material pointed toward that um, I think illustrate. Uh, The kinds of concepts I'm talking about, uh, which makes it accessible to people who relate to that sort of thing. Um, There's also, uh, you know, an effort to sort of articulate some of the theoretical underpinnings from the standpoint of interpersonalist theory and object relations theory uh, of certain kinds um, uh, that I think uh, helps it appeal to people who approach these kinds of things in a more theoretic or scholarly uh, fashion. And so I've been very heartened by the response um, and, uh, you know, again, also the, the range of types of people who can relate to what I'm trying to talk about here. And it's especially thrilling to me when I hear back from people that somehow it influenced their clinical functioning in a way that was very useful to them or sometimes their personal functioning, um, which, again, is just so gratifying. Um You know, we we um, we didn't focus on this per se, but um, the book itself speaks to seven particular patterns. We've mentioned a number of them already Um, uh, and and then a number of smaller and more sort of um, uh, kind of by the way sorts of patterns that aren't that I don't elaborate that much, but that um, that also happen um, here and there moments of being engulfed moments of being discounted. Um, which may or may not build up to a, you know, a full patterning for a given person, but which are worthy of attention. I speak about those um, uh, uh, less well-developed things, but also important currents toward the end of the book. Um, but but I, I've been glad to see that different things speak to different people and um, that it gets them thinking along certain lines that, that I find to be constructive.
0: Well, we're coming to the uh, to the end of our fifty minute hour here. Uh, are you working on anything currently that we can look forward to?
1: Well, uh, thank you for asking. Um, one of the things that I've been picking up on recently um, is the the fact that people uh, or that we all have areas of of weakness or vulnerability, or, in fact, what I think of as as deficits that um, we struggle with throughout life, but that, in my opinion, uh, psychoanalysis has not paid enough attention to. Um, it seems to me like we've sort of um, dichotomized you're either normal or you're abnormal. You're either able or you're disabled. Uh, but in fact, there's it, it, what's true of, of uh, human functioning is that, that we have a range of abilities, disabilities, inabilities, areas of weakness, areas of strength. And I think that the actuality has been undersung and underappreciated and that these two can be a source of again, what I think of as uh, microtraumatic uh, patterning um, that can arise as a function of trying to sidestep these things in ourselves or mute them or deny them or uh, overcompensate for them. So um, I I have a paper coming out in Contemporary Psychoanalysis um, in the fall that has to do with this factor, which I call uh, our Achilles heels, the kinds of things that are... um, you know, deeply ingrained, if not constitutional, that I think we would do well to pay more attention to and to uh, to sort of work on um, allowing the society to be more accepting of these things in in ourselves so that they can be more directly addressed and spoken to. And the quotient of shame that tends to go along with those things can then little by little be reduced, we would hope, over the decades to come. So that would be a wish that I have. Um, for psychoanalysis influence in in the years and decades and centuries to come, if, if that could happen.
0: Well, we look forward to it. Uh, we have been talking to uh, Dr. Margaret Krasnopol about her book, Microtrauma, A Psychoanalytic Understanding of Cumulative Psychic Injury, published by Rutledge. This has been Christopher Bandini for New Books in Psychoanalysis.